This is Christopher Mad Dog Russo's Digging Up the Past, an historical podcast taking a deep dive into the 10 greatest Major League Baseball teams to never win the World Series. Welcome, folks, Digging Up the Past. Christopher Russo, season number three of our podcast series. Subject matter of this one, of course, the 10 greatest baseball teams that never won a fall classic. You know the 10 teams that we chose? We had a caveat that the core of the team uh, never did uh, complete its destiny to win a title. For example, the Yankees, as a good example, in 1980, they had a great ball club. They won 103 games. Gidry, Gossage, Reggie, Nettles, Pinella lost to Kansas City. But we didn't want to put the Yankees in the mix here because they won a World Series in 77 and 78, so we did not consider that team. So keep that in mind. This particular episode, we focus in on a unique ball club, the 94 Montreal Expos. And again, out of all the teams that we discussed in this season of Digging Up the Past, the Expos, this is a very, very unique situation. While all the other teams lost on the field, whatever that might be, crippling regular season collapses, terrible losses in postseason play, World Series playoffs, end of the year, whatever it might be, the Expos scenario is what could have been. So they make this list, theoretically, no fault to their own. What derailed the 94 Expos? <laughs> what else? Baseball's always continuous, ongoing labor struggles. Montreal was one of baseball's smallest markets, and they struggled, of course, year after year, generating revenue streams since their inaugural season in 1969. Major League Baseball awarded Montreal a franchise with the idea that a new ballpark would be built. Expos began their franchise in Jerry Park. Remember, the Expos and Padres came in at the same year. Expos began their seasons in Jerry Park. It's a minor league ballpark. It seated just 3,000 people. And remember, Montreal, Hockey Town, the whole nine yards. But they changed it. They expanded the uh, capacity to about 30,000 for the 69 season. But that of course, causes problems too. It's not built for 30,000, so bad sight lines and poor overall experience for the fans, the whole nine yards. So they wanted a new stadium, the Expos. Isn't that their history in a lot of ways? They wanted a new stadium by 1972, but the city of Montreal always rejected their proposal. But by 74, there were rumblings that the Expos could leave but then the city got the 76 summer games, and of course they needed a, you know, a big stadium for the opening and closing ceremonies in track and field, so they built Olympic Stadium. Then, of course, that becomes the Expo's new home. That starts in uh, 1977. Here's your problem. Olympic Stadium isn't that much better than Jerry Park. Seats in the lower tier were set way back from the field. The upper deck seats, very far away from the playing action. Many sections were closed off for baseball use. It's a mess. You know, it's a, it's a track and field facility. It's a big concrete bowl. It's just not great for baseball. And the issues are not just for the fans. Things weren't that much better for the players. The, the turf on Montreal was special, to say, uh, to say it lightly. Here's Hall of Fame outfielder Larry Walker. I think there was a couple trap doors out in right field that I would step on that I, I thought I was stepping on, you know, actually concrete and metal, but there was supposed to be some artificial grass there too. But it was, uh, it was rough on the, on the body a little bit, but uh, it's the way it was, you know, and, and we adapted to that and we used it as our home field advantage. So you have a poor ballpark experience for fans, dangerous playing conditions for players, and it was clear by the early 90s that if baseball was going to stay in Montreal, the team would need a new stadium. And they had their moments where there was a lot of juice in the ballpark. 79, 80, 81. Big festive atmosphere. Crowd was excellent. 
playing all the music. It, it had some juice there, those three great Expo teams that ended up, uh, you know, only had uh, the one postseason experience. 79 lost to the Pirates, 80 lost to the Phillies, and of course, an 81 loss to Rick Mundy and the Dodgers in Game 5 NLCS at Olympic Stadium. So for the Expos to maintain success as we move into the 90s, they could not approach building a club as those in the major markets uh, like in New York or Boston. So Montreal is going to have to be creative. Presto, bring on longtime baseball executive Dan Duquette. He joined the Expos franchise in 87 as their director of player development, and he became the general manager in 91. So he worked to put this team together, and he had the perfect template here with this Expo team. So he knew, you know, in the early 90s that going into these off seasons, a spending spree was not on the table. We knew that uh, the players weren't going to sign with uh, the Expos up in Canada uh, as free agents. So we knew we had to bring our best players up through the minor leagues. So we put most of our time, money, effort, and energy into good scouting and player development. All right, in addition to the farm system, the Expos made some key trades that pay off big time in 94. Prior to the 92 season, the team moved all-star first baseman, big cat, Andres Galarraga, reminded me a lot of Orlando Cepeda. They traded him to St. Louis. They got Ken Hill. Hill was young, hadn't quite figured things out yet as a starting pitcher, but Galarraga was a year from free agency, so there you go, the Expos using their noodles. Let's trade early instead of late, and they exchange him for some youth. The next move that Duquette made, and the Expos, monumental. We had a second baseman uh, in Mike Lansing who we thought could fill in for Delino, and we had to replace Dennis Martinez in our rotation. And There was only a couple of guys that we thought could do it. We had identified Pedro as one of them, and we thought we could afford to trade Delino because we had a replacement behind him, and you know, we, we ended up making that trade. And, you know, of course, Pedro went on to win the Cy Young Award for the Expos. He, he, was, he was at a stage of his career where he was just maturing as a starter. He had a great year as a reliever just when we traded for him. I guess the Dodgers weren't sure he could start, and uh, we thought he could start. We had Timmy Johnson, who had him in the dugout, uh, was our bench coach, and he had him in the dugout with the Dodgers as a minor league manager. And Timmy vouched for Pedro's ability to start, and we got him in the trade. So there you go. Dan Duquette's greatest move as a general manager. He traded second baseman Delano DeShields to the Dodgers for a future Hall of Famer, Pedro Martinez, and the Dodgers usually don't give up great pitching. Duquette knew that this young team was building towards something special. He wanted to make sure he had the right man to lead them. So in 92, he brought in Felipe Alou as his manager. Felipe Alou is, uh, you know, probably the best manager the Expos ever had. And I knew he was a good manager because I had him in the minor leagues and he had man- he'd managed in the Florida State League. I'd look down at the box scores at the end of the game. And I'd see his teams would have uh, less hits and more runs than the other team. He just had a knack for getting the most out of his players. And he was an excellent uh, tactician during the game. He knew how to manage pitching. And he really knew how to give players confidence and bring young players along. So he was a perfect manager for us with all these young ball players. Now, Lou was a good player. You know, played for the Giants, played for the Braves in the 60s. And after his retirement, he joined the Expos organization, coaching and managing in their minor league system. He did it for over a decade, so he had good stock. There are three things about Alou that really stood out to the aforementioned Ken Hill. Uh, number one, communication. Uh, number two, the knowledge of the game. And number three, he knew what his players could do. He put players in situations where they would succeed. 
Now, remember, Olympic Stadium, turf, big outfield. So you, how do you build a team to fit that huge area there left to right? You got to figure out how you're going to defense that properly. That's in Duquette's mindset as he really, in a lot of ways, arguably built the team's greatest strength. We knew we had to play a lot of our home games there, and we had to have outfielders that were gifted uh, defensively to cover the ground, and we, we placed a premium on speed. We probably had the best outfield with uh, Larry Walker, of course, the Hall of Famer in right, Marcus Grissom, who, who was a prototypical leadoff guy in center, and then Moises Alou, who had the big power. He was in uh, left field, and so that, that was... One of the strengths of the team was the outfielders because if you got outfielders like these guys that can contribute on both sides of the ball, run, steal bases, throw, hit, and hit with power, you know, you got a big advantage. And that really helped our pitching staff, of course, because these guys could run down the balls in the gaps out there at Olympic Stadium uh, and, and around the league. I mean, they, they were really the key strength of the team. So the foundation of this team is set. Hill and Pedro, top of the rotation. Alou, Walker, Grissom in his outfield, and a young infield, Cliff Floyd, Mike Lansing, Will Cardero, good shortstop, Sean Barry, Darren Fletcher behind the plate. The infield's average age was under 25 years of age. This is Duquette's vision for this ball club, and he had put it together so they would be ready to go and in peak form as 94 began. We had planned from 1991 on for this to be our, our top team. I mean, we looked at the roster, we looked at the players, when they would mature and, and when the team could afford them. Because this, this team had the lowest payroll in the National League, the Expos. And we projected that 94 was going to be a really top team. And, you know, we, we were correct. We, we had an excellent farm system, good baseball people, and a lot of good ball players. All right, the players knew the team was good. But in spring training, they're not thinking about the World Series. That according to Larry Walker. I don't think expectations were over the top. I don't think any of us, uh, you know, I don't think you set them too high because then you get smacked down pretty good. So I, I think once we, we gelled as a team and our pitching staff, you know, obviously was pretty phenomenal. And then on the back end of that with Rojas and Wetland coming in at the end, you know, it was it was kind of those uh, seven inning games we'd have to play because the, they would close the door on them all the time. So it was a uh, it, it was a fun year that year. Mel Rojas and John Wetland, the anchors to that Expos bullpen. Now, ninety three season Montreal, they only were three games back at the Phillies. I did not realize that as the Phillies ended up winning a pennant. The ninety four season, that's the new divisional alignment. The NL West Atlanta Braves moved to the East, and that gave the Expos another formidable opponent. Remember, the Braves were in the NL West to beat the Giants in that great pennant race in ninety three. Then they moved to the East. Out of the gates, Atlanta hot. That's their norm. Thirteen and one. I didn't realize that to start the year. And the Expos not so much. The Expos sputtered. They were four nine. In the first two weeks of the season, boy, the old adage, you can't win a pennant in April, but you can lose one. Boy, that almost held here for this great Expo team, as it turns out. Found themselves eight and a half back early. Here's Ken Hill. It was one of those deals where we couldn't let them really. I mean, they started out quick. We started out slow, but we're still confident. And and the thing about it, you know, with the Braves, with their pitching staff, they can they can go on runs pretty easily. So, but we got together as a staff, and and like I said, the younger players started to get their footing, and we just started consistently pitching well, and and we just went on a run. Uh, the Expos, as we turned to May, uh, got to play a little better, 
got their equilibrium, you know, got over 500, so they felt better about themselves. And now they began to stack up some wins as we headed to June. And pitching, pitching, always pitching. In Montreal's case, it came to its own. Ken Hill already had 10 wins and was pitching himself into Cy Young contention. In 94, maturing, understanding how to pitch instead of throwing. And the pitching coach, uh, Joe Kerrigan, helped me out quite a bit in that, in that standpoint. So it was a great situation for me. Believe it or not, Pedro got off to a slow start. I didn't realize this myself. I was young here. Not quite the Pedro that we learned a little later on with the Red Sox. Uh, he was 1-3 in three in his first six appearances. However, Hill knew it was only a matter of time before Mr. Martinez put it all together. I knew he was going to be special. The thing about Pedro was at the time he hit throw that two-seamer that would get away from him. But once he, contro- once he got uh, understanding that two-seam, that was running on him, he figured that out. And, you know, he already had the curveball and the changeup. It was just a matter of him learning how to pitch. You know, when he was with the Dodgers, they used him out of the pen. But, you know, once he learned how to pitch as a starter, he saw, you know, he shoots a Hall of Fame career. Uh, Walker chimes in here. He says while Pedro was learning on the job, there was one part of his game that he already had mastered. Well, he might not have been the, the Pedro that we all know, but he was the Pedro that everybody knew as far as the intimidation factor. You know, he, he might not have mowed everybody down like he, he did, but his intimidation factor on the mound was huge. And when, when he took the mound, he struck fear in the, in, in the hearts of other teams that came into play, you know, and that's hard to do for somebody that, of his stature. He's so small but had such velocity and command of all of his pitches. And, uh, you know, it was just a matter of time till he put it all together because he had the mental part put down right away. You know, Mr. Walker is right. Intimidation was Pedro's middle name. This is all not about Pedro with the Red Sox and his wars with the Yankees. In fact, with Montreal pitching inside caused not one, not two, but three bench-clearing brawls in 94 alone. Pedro has struck out seven, including the side in the fifth inning. And Reggie's going to go after him. It's the third time. Both benches empty as they try to pull each other apart at the mound. Reggie Sanders, after being brushed back twice on the pitch on the inside part of the plate, gets hit and charges the mound. Martinez turned away and didn't realize he was coming. By the time he did, there was no place to hide. But it's effective. You got to pitch inside that part of the plate. You got to control if you're a pitcher. Matter of fact, in his first year as a starter, Pedro won 11 games, ERA of three, and a strikeout an inning. He did, however, lead the league and hit batsman. Larry Walker. With the starting pitching, the way it was, you know, obviously when, when uh, Kenny and, and Pedro were taking the mound, heck, we probably could have scored two runs and, uh, and been successful on most of those games. So uh, if we're averaging five, five and a half a game for those guys, it's a walk in the park for us, and that's what it turned out to be. Now, Hill says it wasn't just the rotation. This bullpen, they had a good bullpen, made life easy. We knew once we got to the six, had the lead, we, it was game over. It was game over because, you know, you think about it, Rojas ended up being a closer. Jeff Shaw went to Cincinnati and was a closer, and we had Wetland as a closer. And the people forget about Tim Scott, Gil Heredia. So, I mean, we had guys, oh, Jesus, it was six-inning game. It was over. Uh, the Expos, they're getting better as the summer moves along. 
Firmly in second place as June does finally roll around. Three or four games behind the Braves for most of the month. But Walker said they weren't focused on Atlanta. They just focused on winning some ball games here. For us, they were they were really just another team. Uh, and we never looked at them as any different than any other team we had to take down. And uh, like I say, when we, when we took the field, it was just a weird year that you just uh, – I don't know how to explain it because I never had another year like that where we, we took the field, we weren't – we weren't cocky. We weren't uh, arrogant in any way. We just went out there, and it was like we were used to winning, and and we just continued to do it without, uh, you know, without any bad streaks along the way. Dog days of summer. Teams are starting to stagger. Montreal, though, there's a young team. Not an incredible amount of hot weather in Canada, and they're finding another gear with their offense. No problem getting key hits, invigorating their French Canadian fan base. On July 17th, the Expos were 54 and 37. And remember, they got off to that horrendous start, but still two games back with the Braves. At this point, Montreal would take off, and during their scorching hot run, everything was going right. And the center sends Gerald Young back. He misread it. It's off his glove. Grissom will head to third. He might circle the bases. Here comes Marquise. The throw by Pena. Safe for the Astros win. Three to two. Played ball in center by Gerald Young. That should have been the first out. Instead, the game is over. That's Joe Buck on that last call, by the way. That's prior to Fox when Joe was doing these Cardinal games. The Expos won 20 of their next 22. They got to 74. Think about it. 74 and 39. 74 and 39. That's what a hot streak does. In, you know, late July, early August, you go from two games behind to seven games ahead. And at this point, the Expos had captured the attention of their fans coming out to the ballpark in droves, much to the delight of the Canadian-born Walker. When you're winning, it's, uh, you know, the, the Montreal fans can be a little fickle. They've been very spoiled with, you know, 25 Stanley Cups. And, and to win the hearts of them as a baseball team is, is hard to do because hockey is, is their love. But we did it, you know, and we, 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 they were filling the Olympic Stadium and there wasn't a louder ballpark in the league when people were filling that stadium. And it was a joy to play in. The people out in the streets of the city would you know, you'd go walk to have lunch or something and, and people would swarm you and just, you know, they were eating it up. They loved every second of it. And that's, you know, that's why I think hopefully down the road that that franchise can reconnect and, and get back into Montreal and let those people maybe have that chance at that, that title again. All right, on Tuesday, August 11th, the Expos dropped their game to the Pirates 4-0. Again, their record, 74-40, and 40, 34 games over 500. The reason that is significant, that's the final game of the season. There's plenty more ways to listen to Mad Dog Sports Radio than turning to Channel 82. Miss any of the shows live? They are all available on the SiriusXM app. Great video content from Morning Men, Adam Shine, and the doggy himself. Have a laugh with Babchick from the basement. Plus podcasts like Digging Up the Past and the Adam Shine Podcast. And make sure to check out the Mad Dog interviews and highlights tabs for more great content. It's all available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. So easy to use, even a dog can do it.
strikes me as a terrible shame that because the large market and the small market owners can't agree on how to sort out baseball's revenue among themselves, that they have to force the players to strike. The voice you heard there is MLBPA Executive Director Donald Fear talks about the black cloud over baseball's head the entire 94 year. Baseball ownership, they want that salary cap. You know that. They fought, they fought, they wanted that cap in the worst way to help the lower-rung ball clubs. Teams like Montreal they sort of bridge the gap between the small and large market teams. Players don't want that. They love the system the way it is. They're not going to budge. That, of course, leads to a uh, strike. And then, of course, uh, you know, all sorts of mediation. Nothing ever gets done, and away you go. When August 12th actually hit, the Expos were six games up on Atlanta and in first place in that NL East, but none of them really even considered that the season, this is it, it's over. Nobody thought about that. Here's Walker. It seemed pretty simple. And, and, the, and the two-week number was the one that was thrown out the most, that you know, two weeks we'll be back, everything get resolved, and we get back into this. And, and that was it. We never, ever crossed our minds that the season was going to be wiped out and that 74 and, and 40 record was going to be for naught. And uh, never crossed our minds until it actually you know, came true. All right, even the most unionized expo, you know, who wanted to strike, probably thought they would be back by early September. You know what? That's everybody cool off. We'll negotiate. We'll get a deal done. We'll miss a couple of weeks. We'll live. Maybe extend the season. Dan Duquette believes, though, that there were some Expos who went the other way, actually didn't want to strike at all. I think there was a few players on that ball club that wanted the season to go on, but out of their allegiance to the other players, they, of course, had to vote. Well, I remember talking to John Wetland. He was the player rep. And he said, you know, um, I really wanted to vote to have the season continue. He said, but I couldn't just do it as the player rep. He goes, that was a really special group of players. Well, some of the players weren't even certain they wanted to walk away. Others really didn't know how long that strike would last. Again, a lot of folks thought maybe by September 1st. Veterans like Ken Hill knew they had a stand, however, with their union. As a player, we knew going in that the strike could happen. We didn't know how long it was going to last. But we knew it could happen, it could end, end, end the season. So from a mental standpoint, we knew it was going to happen, but we didn't know how long it was going to last. So, I mean, in terms of that, yeah, disappointing. We didn't get to finish it, but we knew as a union we had to take a stand. The strike wipes out the rest of the year, and while nobody knows how it would have played out, Dan Duquette thinks that his club's hot play would have continued into the fall. You know, this is a team that if you project it, you know, they, they, they could have easily won, won, won over 100 games. And, and that's, uh, I mean, this, this team had everything. It had power. It had speed. It had pitching. It had a lockdown bullpen. It had middle infielders and a catcher and a center fielder in the middle of the diamond that could hit. It had an excellent manager. It just, it just didn't have the opportunity to, you know, to, to show its mettle. So they cancel the World Series. They could have been Yankees Expos. It creates the ultimate what-if scenario. At the time of the strike, Matt Williams of the Giants, their third baseman, he was on the pace to hit 62 home runs, which, of course, would have broken Roger Maris's record of 61. Right fielder Tony Gwynn hitting 394, and the way he played and his disposition, he was good with the media, loved to talk left and right. That wouldn't have bothered him. Maybe on pace to hit over 400. That hadn't been done since Teddy Ballgame. Ted Williams is 406 in 1941. And, of course, the World Series and whether the small market expos, could they have gone all the way? And if they did, how about the Yankees in a World Series? The Yankees had a great record in the American League. 
It's a matchup that Dan Duquette would have loved to have seen. That would have been David versus Goliath with the Expos, the lowest payroll in the National League, facing the Yankees with the highest payroll in the business. That, that could have played out in the Expos' favor. I've seen a lot of computer simulations that say that the Expos would have prevailed. Uh, but, you know, we, we had youth, and, uh, you know, we had a complete team that was well-balanced and well-managed. MLB Network's Tom Verducci provides further analysis of that hypothetical. That would have been a great matchup. I'd lean towards the Expos. I mean, first of all, they had a lot more speed. I think they led the league in stolen bases. Just young athletic players could beat you in a lot of different ways. Home runs, stolen bases, pitching. They had a deep bullpen and a manager in L.A. who really knew how to use the staff. So I think the Expos were probably a little bit deeper than the Yankees. No doubt about that. The Yankees were playing really well when the strike hit. But um, I, I would say the Expos had a good chance of being world champions in 94. All right, following the conclusion of the strike, and it took a while, folks, the Expos facing financial difficulties. Ownership decides they got to break up the team. No surprise there. So Larry Walker's gone. Grissom is gone. Ken Hill is gone. Wetland, they're all gone prior to April of 95, the start of the next year. That core quickly evaporates, all the fan support with it, and that lack of public support crushed their hopes of having the city of Montreal approve building a new stadium, which they needed in the absolute worst way, in a fickle hockey town. Without a new ballpark and the revenue that comes with that, it's hard to keep talented players, and the Expos were relocated in 2004, finally becoming the Washington Nationals. And if you ask MLB Commissioner Bud Selig, believe it or not, he doesn't think the strike impacted the future of the franchise. I felt badly, and it really hurt baseball in Montreal. There's no question about it. I know that that's not altogether positive. Look, they still don't have a stadium, and it's 20 years since we moved. I kept it there another nine or ten years. There was no local ownership, couldn't get local ownership, and couldn't get a stadium. In fact, I had had Frank Robinson up there managing, and he kept saying to me, why are you keeping this team here? That story never gets told. You figured Bud would feel this way about the Expo departure. Inevitable. But if you talk to many others, including broadcasting legend Bob Costas, you know what? He paints a different picture. There are still people who are Expo fans or were Expo fans who will tell you that had it played out that way, that there not been a strike that blew out the end of the season in the World Series, had they gone all the way to the World Series and won it, that would have been similar maybe to what the Mariners did in 95 when they thought, they're out of town. They can't save the team. They won't build a new stadium. The kingdom's terrible. They've got all kinds of legislation and referendums on the ballot. Can we save the Mariners? And then they came on, came out of nowhere. They caught the Angels, um, and they got all the way to the LCS um, before losing to Cleveland, and that revitalized and maybe saved baseball in Seattle going forward. People thought maybe the same scenario would have happened in Montreal. Tom Verducci shares a similar belief. 94 is to me, the ultimate what-if scenario with these great teams and how history might be different. Because I, I think if that team gets in, in the postseason, goes to a World Series, we still have baseball in Montreal. I, I think they never really had the opportunity, first of all, to have a, a real like retractable roof, outdoor stadium downtown, easy to get to. But momentum was starting to build there with that 94 team. This was a team that was going to go for a run. So if it wasn't the 94 Expos going to the World Series, maybe it was 95 or maybe it was 96. But, of course, that didn't happen because once the strike hit, they decided just to strip everything down, and Kevin Malone was under orders to just move everybody on the roster the next year. So, 
You had a young Pedro Martinez on that team. I mean, you're just loaded with young talent that you were just looking at the opening of a window, and it just never really happened because of the strike. As we mentioned, Larry Walker was gone after the 94 season. He heads to the Rockies. Duquette thinks losing him had bigger ramifications than just the play on the field. Here's Dan. Larry Walker's going in the Hall of Fame, the first Canadian position player, second Canadian ever. You know, we, we had somebody that, you know, the people all over Canada would follow. We had a star player in, in, in Larry Walker. So, you know, we, we certainly had a, had a chance to, to, to do that. Knowing what the Expos could have been is something that bothered Walker long after the 94 season concluded. Listen, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of sleepless nights uh, after all that happened because, you know, you, you don't know if you're – it's like if you hit 300. You're hitting 301 and then and the, you know, your season ends. You're like, oh, my God, I hit over 300. You don't know if you'll ever do that again in your career. So it's a special moment that you don't know about yet. And then for that Expos team to, to, to not get to finish the – you know, the, the road that we were on to, 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 the, to finish it is like, well, at the time, you don't think about it because you think, okay, well, that happened. Let's, we'll carry into next year, and we'll just, we'll just do it again. And, and that's when you real, really realize, well, next year didn't happen for a few of us because we got, we got traded, you know, and, uh, and the team basically got dismantled. So uh, that's when it really kind of smacked me in the head was the, the next spring when, you know, I wasn't in an Expo uniform. It was, I was in a Rocky uniform, and, and that season – really was washed away. Of our 10 greatest teams that did not win this World Series, no franchise. Again, the impactfulness of this on the Expos, it's very difficult to really put into words. While the rest of these fan bases had to deal with heartbreaking losses, no other city had to deal essentially with the breakup of their team, all their best stars being traded or you know sold off. And then, of course, later on, they lose the ball club 10 years later. Would Major League Baseball still have had a franchise in Montreal if they avoided that strike in 94? I know Bud Selig said no, but if you ask the fans in Montreal, the players themselves, and maybe me, the answer is a resounding yes. For more episodes on baseball's great teams never to win a title or to listen to the previous seasons covering the history of Thanksgiving football and the NCAA tournament, download the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Download it today and search Digging Up the Past or subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Digging Up the Past is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Bill Zimmerman. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound design is by Matt Damro and Joey DeFazio. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen, vice president of sports programming, Eric Spitz, and Mad Dog Sports Radio program director, Steve Torrey.